strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialised logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we're going to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you live here from the Red Centre here in Abantua, Alice Springs on Aranda Country, here from the uh, Calm Radio Studios. We're broadcasting on 8KNFM here in Alice Springs and also right across uh, the nation through Vast Channel 911. We're also coming to you online via our website at karma.com.au. I'm your host, Kyle Dowling. Great to have your company this uh, Wednesday morning. It's the 24th of July, 2018. And 19. Coming up on the program today, uh, Senator Rachel Seaworth, the Australian Greens spokesperson for Aboriginal Affairs, is pushing to have the age of criminal responsibility raised to 14. Senator Seaworth has put a motion forward yesterday, and we're going to be hearing from uh, Senator Seaworth what she has to say about that topic today. Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory and Western Australia have also been able to access uh, more than $4 million in unclaimed superannuation funds. Today, the First Nations Foundation will discuss the communities visited so far for the uh, Big Super Day Out event. We're also going to hear from uh, Luke Pearson, who's well known for his work with Indigenous X. He's going to be joining us to tell a bit of his uh, life journey on the program near the tail end of the show today. And we're, of course, going to have the very latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. All that coming up very soon, right after this. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices. You're here with me, Kyle Dowling. Well, the Senate voted down a motion put forward by Senator Rachel Seawert and Senator Pat Dodson, which called on the government to urgently legislate and raise the age age of uh, criminal responsibility to a minimum of 14 years. Uh, Right across the country at the moment, the age of criminal responsibility is at uh, 10 years. Uh, Karma's Damien Williams spoke with Green spokesperson Senator Rachel Seawert and about the uh, Senate's decision. So what happened is that a motion put forward by myself and Senator Dodson unfortunately was voted down fairly narrowly but it still went down. The government claimed that it was up to the states and there was already the Council of Attorney Generals considering the issue but we don't think that is good enough. The Commonwealth can and must show leadership on this issue and bring the state and territories along with them. Ten years is is pretty young like you know what is justified why didn't they want to do that well they didn't really have the guts to justify why they think it's okay to lock up 10 year olds because we're these are children that are being locked up and we've all seen the awful 
reports of children ending up in adult jails, even being in youth detention is awful, of course, but then ending up in um, adult prisons is even worse. Um, we've seen the treatment that these, these children are receiving and it's absolutely appalling and the Commonwealth should be showing leadership here, expressing their outrage that children as young as 10 are being locked up and I've got to go back to the fact that they need to be showing leadership and taking some action here. And as you said, um, you know, children are being put into adult prisons. Is that just because there's no room, nowhere to put them? It's a combination also of some of the the state. So with the age, obviously, at 10 is appalling, but also then you've got, you know, various states and territories with mandatory sentencing and things like that all combines to add up to a, a larger number of children in detention or growing number, I should say, of children in detention. Um, they're not implementing, as people in the Northern Territory know, um, they're not implementing the bulk of the... A large number, hundreds of recommendations from the Northern Territory Royal Commission. We're continuing to see children mistreated in Queensland and, and of course, this, there's reports from other states. And sadly, the number of children and even adults that are incarcerated are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. How much of an impact will that have on locking more of these disadvantaged people up? That's exactly what's happening. You're absolutely right. The majority of, of the children are First Nations children um, around, uh, around Australia. It's, uh, and we see a growing, uh, growing number of um, Aboriginal children ending up uh, interacting with the justice system. Um, and we see that. And, and one of the very, very deep concerns there is also is once they've had that um, contact with the justice system, then there is a strong connection with continued interaction with the justice system. So this is why we need to... I mean, obviously, raising the age is not the only thing that needs to be done, but it would help and contribute very strongly to ensure that children are not ending up in detention and that we also look at the other issues around it such as mandatory sentencing but also making sure that we've got uh, social reinvestment, justice uh, reinvestment to ensure that children don't end up interacting with the justice system in the first place and if they do that we take a therapeutic approach and that children don't end up in the justice system but they end up in being diverted out of that process. Yeah, I was just going to ask, uh, should there be more investment in getting those interventions, sort of early intervention strategies and, and places, diversion places um, up and running? Yeah, very strongly. We need to be making sure that instead of spending the millions and millions of dollars that are spent on jails and prisons every year, that that is, a, you know, so justice reinvestment, some states call it social reinvestment, ensures that some of the proportion of that money um, is invested in early intervention and prevention, which we know works, but we need to make sure that it's, you know, there's a various trials around, you know, around Australia, um, we need to, which I should say are starting to show a lot of promise and, and results. So we're building the evidence base. We know that early intervention and prevention works if it's done properly and that needs to be developed and delivered by First Nations peoples. We know that that works, but it's a long-term investment as well. If we divert that money into doing that, we will stop 
interactions with the justice system and start make and and that'll start the process of making sure that we're not seeing First Nations children um, interaction interact with the justice system. And Senator, you know, we are talking about uh, young children, you know, from the age of ten. Do you think there's a, a good? Um, Oh, another way of, you know, even um, helping the parents uh, to deal with it and, and, and that kind of thing? Yeah, very definitely. And that's part of what early intervention and prevention is about, is you know, having more uh, support for families, making sure that we're investing very early. And, you know, some programs, there's examples of some little programs, unfortunately not enough funding is invested in this issue, but working with families to ensure right from the start that families are getting supported, that children are getting supported. And one of the committees I was on um, a little while ago, we heard of programs from even young mothers before the baby's born, um, supporting them to make sure that they're supported. And then through young people's early years, there's plenty of support for families, for young families, for the children. And we've got to continue those processes. But there's a whole lot of other issues. And unfortunately, we're just not seeing all of the areas supported that need to be. So, for example, one of my passions, um, I think your listeners would have heard me talk about this before, is is hearing um, and making sure that we address OM, for example, making sure that kids um, are able to do that early early learning um, because we know, for example, that, that um, people in the justice system, First Nations peoples in the justice system have a high rate of hearing loss. So there's, there's so many things that we need to be uh, actually addressing, but it's not beyond our capacity to do that because we, you know, people are aware of this. The funding just isn't available for investment in these sorts of programs and that's where we need to be investing money, not in the other end of the system, which is in the justice system. We need to be doing it at the beginning. And Senator, so where to from here? What are, what's the next steps you're going to take to uh, try and get this bill passed? So um, uh, there's a campaign going, Raise the Age, and we are, we are committed to helping with that program. Um, the Greens are committed to raising the age of communal responsibility to at least 14 years. So we are committed to working with the range of organisations that are campaigning on this. There is, a, there is a, an active group campaigning on rage, raising the age. So we're going to continue to work with them. I'll be bringing it up in the Senate whenever I can. I'll be giving an adjournment speech on this issue in the Senate during this sitting period and we'll continue to raise it. Um, I'm aware that there's other things that are happening at the moment through the um, raising this issue with the United Nations and the, and the Committee on the Rights of the Child. So those issues, are, uh, I know, are part of the campaign. So we will continue to raise this issue, but also to make sure that the recommendations from, from the Northern Territory Royal Commission are implemented. We saw just recently where the NT government, while they had made some amendments in line with the Northern Territory um, Royal Commission, we then saw them walk backwards from that. That is outrageous. Um, we need to see those, those recommendations implemented. And how do we sort of get them 
to be implemented? Do we how, how do we hold uh, governments accountable for that? Well, well, that's where I think that raising this issue internationally is also really important. We have a range of conventions that we have committed to as a nation, and we need to be upholding those. So we need to be talking about this from the United Nations in every state and territory. Vigorous campaigns need are running in various states to bring this matter to the focus of attorney generals who are supposed to be meeting to uh, consider this issue or are supposed to be considering this issue across Australia. That, that, and again, I'll circle back around to the role of the federal government. They need to be showing leadership. They need to be committed to raising the, um, the age of criminal responsibility. They, if the Commonwealth committed to it, that would help drive the process. And I was just wondering, again, um, just sort of uh, as, yeah, just wondering, like, what's the process? Do you have to wait a while to be able to put that um, put that bill up again? or? Uh, it was a motion. I mm. can bring motions to Parliament at any stage. So we c- will be continuing to raise this issue through through the various processes available to the Parliament, but we'll continue to take um, motions back to the Senate to keep this front and, se- front and centre um, in the, on the Senate's agenda. On that note, Senator Rachel Seaworth, thanks very much for talking to us here on Karma Radio. My pleasure, any time. That was Green Senator Rachel Seaworth there, the spokesperson for Aboriginal Affairs, speaking with Karma's uh, Damien Williams. We're going to go to a break now and then we'll be back here on Strong Voices. Hi, this is Kevin Capinari and you listen to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Bam! Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory and Western Australia have been able to access more than $4 million in unclaimed super funds. The reuniting of people's super was due to the First Nations Foundation's Big Super Day Out. The event is an outreach program helping community members locate and access lost superannuation. The First Nations Foundation is a charity which provides financial assistance to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Amanda Young, uh, CEO of the First Nations Foundation, says they are happy about the response to their first trip. We have been so elated with the result from the big super day out. We've got two trips. We've finished the first trip last week. We had a roadshow of 30 volunteers, including government departments, superannuation funds, financial counsellors and even lawyers, and we found $4.3 million for Indigenous people. Wow, that's, that's amazing, isn't it? In three days. Three half days, I might add. (laughs) There was an amazing feeling, not only for the um, Indigenous community members who came, but also the volunteers who helped them locate all of this money and could see their lives change before their very eyes. So where are the places that you visited during this trip? We started in Darwin and we set up right in the centre of town and 50 people rocked up out of the blue to see if they could find any superannuation and we found about $230,000 on the first day. We had a sausage sizzle, we looked after everyone. Then we moved on to Kununurra and in Kununurra we blew every record book we've ever had. We found, and this isn't the final tally at the moment, but we found $2.5 million between 10 a.m., and 4pm in Kununurra. And there were about 90 people who turned up from really far away, not just the Mirawong people who were local, but also bust in from six hours away or three hours away. 
It was astonishing. And then finally we went to Broome where we found another one and a half million. How does that process actually work when you're going there and you're going to these places and and reconnecting people with their super? How does that process go? So the first thing we need is a good community partner, a good Aboriginal community partner who can promote the event so people know we're coming. Because it's one of those events that it's hard for you to just turn up to if you don't have a bit of documentation, a bit of ID. That was number one. That happened months before we arrived. Secondly, we had to turn up on the day and make sure it went out, was promoted everywhere. But let's just say you're an Indigenous, you're an Aboriginal person and you know that you've worked and you think maybe you might have some superannuation, but you don't know. It's quite a... It's quite a travelling roadshow. It's a real caravan. So you start off with, did you bring any identification? And if they don't have enough ID, then we put them to DHS and they can go through and confirm their identity and then identify what their tax file number is. Once we have that, they move down (laughs) down the conveyor belt to the Australian tax office and the Australian tax office knows where every cent of everybody's superannuation is whether it's in a superannuation fund and still, you know, being invested in and also being um, charged fees or whether it's been lost and it's sitting with the ATO itself. So that's where the really magic moment happens when people discover how much superannuation they have. Then we move them down the conveyor belt to the next conversation, which is really what do you want to do with this money? Do you want to access it now? Are you old enough? Are you over 60? Or do you have financial hardship? Or it might be a deceased claim. Maybe it's for a family member. So we'll go through all of that with them. Or it might even be that people want to keep on adding to their superannuation and do what's called contributions, adding extra money to it because it grows so much. So at the end of all of this, we can also have people who can't work anymore because they've been injured. And guess what? Super gives you insurance. So for many people, we discovered that they already had life or total permanent disability insurance. And if they can't work anymore, they can make a claim. So we think there's about $900,000 on top of that $4.3 million number, I said, for insurance claims that could go through. So, Amanda, how is the uh, First Nations Foundation actually funded? Well, I have to say that, Carl, we we raise our own money at First Nations Foundation because we receive no government support at the moment for our work. Uh, We'd like that to change. We can see now if we can find nearly $19 million Indigenous money in 17 communities, there is huge demand out there and there's huge impact for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families for us to find this money. So we would like to go everywhere in Australia, and in fact, we did get phone calls from Halls Creek, from Catherine, from all around communities saying, are you going to come and visit us? I had Kalgoorlie today. If you want the First Nations Foundation Big Super Day out to come to your town, you need to let the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, Ken Wyatt, know that this is something you really want, because at the moment, the government doesn't realise that there's so much demand. I, I think, you know, when you were just talking about there, the, the sort of conveyor belt, having all the different providers there in one place, I think is a, is a really valuable service. Because as we know, while services are available out there and things like that, it, it can often be quite hard 
for the mob, particularly those in remote communities, you know, people who, uh, you know, have to travel very long distances to access certain services or, or may not be able to even get internet or, or you know, English maybe a second or third language, uh, to have all the services in one place is definitely invaluable, isn't it? Oh, it's unique. No one in Australia does what we do. No one gets the results that we get because they don't do what we do, but that's what you need. You need to have everyone in the service system in superannuation there to get it done. And we had an end-to-end result with a bloke. So uh, in Broome, a man walked in. He he had no ID on him, and so we identified him. He then discovered $17,000 in a um, lost superannuation account. He was aged over 60, and by the time he left that day, we had made arrangements for the money, the $17,000, because he was over 60, he could have it, was going to be in his account the very next day. What are the next sort of steps then in the big super day? Where are the next trips going to be happening? What is, do you have some of those dates? So the next trip will start on the 19th of August. We're going to um, Gapuyak in Northern Territory. Then we're going to the next day to Gallywinkle on Elko Island. The day after that, Wednesday, the 21st of August, to Millingimbi. And then finally, the next day, the 22nd of August, we're in Ramangitting. We are so excited at First Nations Foundation to have found 18.87 million dollars in Indigenous superannuation in only 17 days in 17 communities. We're going to four more communities in Arnhem Land this year, so we really hope we can crack $20 million, but imagine how much more is out there. So to everyone who is Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander and who has worked, please get into your super, even if the big super day app's not hitting town. Start to look into it, get into MyGov, register and find your superannuation. You'll be really pleased. Amanda, thank you again for so much for speaking with us on Calm Radio. Thank you so much, and I really look forward to reporting back in after we finish East Stardom. That was uh, Amanda Young there, CEO of the First Nations Foundation. We're going to go to a track now, and then we'll be right back. Hi, my name's Alan Pedersen, and you're listening to Calm Radio, Strong Voices on 18 FM. Luke Pearson is a Gumilroy man who founded Indigenous X in 2012. Luke has worked as a teacher, mentor, counsellor, public speaker, collaborator, mediator, facilitator, events manager, researcher, evaluator, reporter, and much more. Luke's passion for Indigenous X stems from his belief in the need to improve Indigenous media representation in Australia and to have a platform for individuals to tell their own stories in their own words. Karma's Paul Wiles recently spoke with uh, Mr. Pearson a bit about his life journey. We're going to play the first part of that conversation now. I grew up on a farm outside of Wagga Wagga in a little town called The Rock, which is funny because whenever I'm in Sydney or somewhere, it's like, I grew up at The Rock, and everyone's like, do you mean Uluru? <laughs> Not that rock. It's a, There's a little town that's actually called The Rock, about 30 k's out of Wagga. We were on about 500 acres out there, so a cattle farm. Dad had grown up as a drover, and so liked the idea of running his own farm. Better worker than businessman, so we always sort of struggled to, to get through it. So I, I grew up riding horses, getting the eggs, feeding the pigs, doing fencing, doing whatever needed to be done. Then we, we moved into Wagga when I was a young fella. Good childhood, you know, we didn't we didn't go without. We weren't the flashiest on the street, but we, we ate. You know, can't, can't ask for much more than that. Our mum and dad both worked. Our dad doing manual labour things when we moved off the farm. Mum 
uh, worked between docs and, and juvenile justice. So I think, you know, between the two of them gave me really interesting insights into the country that we live in and, you know, the world around us. Dad Curry, Mum White. So, you know, both for very different reasons telling us not to trust the police growing up. <laughs> Mum, because she worked with them at docks. Um, Dad, because they hassled him. As a child, when did you understand what it was to be Aboriginal? What was the first confrontation where someone picked you out? I'd imagine mm. you were a big child as well. Yeah, yeah, bloke. yeah, pretty, pretty tall. For, and, and youngest of, of three in a, in a family that knew how to throw their weight around when they had to. Um, so growing up on the farm, I didn't actually cop a lot of flack from anyone. It wasn't more till I got older. But yeah, the the first story of even noticing that sort of, you know, dad was Aboriginal and, and we were Aboriginal, like was um, on, on the farm apparently watching an old episode of um, F Troop, which yeah, people dress it up in brown face pretending to be Native American. And I came into the lounge room about three years old and said, when I grow up, I want to be an Indian, just like dad. And because, um, yeah, I, I was in the 80s there and early 80s, there weren't many black files on TV. You, you don't notice that people look different when you're a kid, you're just dad's dad, mum's mum. But somehow it clicked in my head watching, watching an episode of F Troop that dad must have been Native American. And so that's when Dad, you know, first time he's like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm Aboriginal, you're Aboriginal. And and that was just very matter of fact, you know, growing up. It wasn't until, you know, probably late primary school, even early high school, that someone actually went, no, you're not, or, you know, whatever, whatever they said. And it was just like, well, of course I am because... Dad told me I am, and so I, I think I was a bit luckier than other mob who, you know, white parson, fair skin, however you want to refer to us, you know, but I'm fair skin, blue-eyed fella who's always grown up knowing he was Aboriginal. I think that is a, an important topic in, mm. in today's Australia, that mm. being a black fella doesn't mean you've got to be black, as yeah, in skin well, colour. In, in that, yeah, and that, it, it's funny in one sense, though, man, because it, it's something I'm, I'm happy to talk about, and, and I think it is something that for people who have no idea what it is, or even for younger Aboriginal people who, who struggle mm. with their own sense of self, it's important to have conversations about it. But at the same time, we're not new. You know what I mean? Like, like well, white people got here you know, 230 years ago, and after a year or two of them being here, there started to be fair-skinned blackfellas around, and and that you know has a horrendous history um, as as part of that. But that's that's not always you know how how we come about. But it's like it frustrates me on one level, man. That like I said, we we shouldn't need to be having this conversation 200 years on. Identity and, and culture and family and connection aren't as superficial as no. that. But at the same time, I do appreciate it's something that the country's never really handled that well. You know, we used to have a lot of laws and legislations around who was Aboriginal and blood quotients and yeah. all that sort of nonsense. Um, but but for me, it's always been very simple as like, you know, we, we're right and anyone who challenges that is wrong. It's never really... Right. You yeah. know, n- never made me question who I am. It makes me question who they are and what this country is. So connection to country and culture how important was that to you growing up growing up in a white fella world that connection to culture in particular how significant was was that for you when you're saying they're like connection to culture for white fellas a lot of white fellas go oh well, we don't have any it's not it's like no and you're surrounded by it it's everywhere it's just mm. normal and so same for us it's like if, if you ask your average white kid like what are your thoughts on your culture like, i have no idea what you're talking about Whereas we're sort of trained from a younger age to to separate ourselves as what's our culture, what's white culture, what's Australian culture. But a lot of it, again, growing up on a farm, like, you know, when when we'd be out and Dad would tell you a story about the stars or the ring around the moon and the stars within it and how you can sort of tell when the rain's coming from that, like... 
there, there was no because my dad grew up you know drove in a lot and spent a lot of time like there was no differentiation between which is a traditional story which is a white story which is a so it, that that sort of stuff for me wasn't until i was older where i can actually look back on my own childhood and my own life and go which bits were traditional knowledge which bits were western knowledge which bits were just sort of whatever <laughs> come from wherever so it, it was never really done in in overt ways that i separated components of myself and my identity and, and my knowledge base you mm. know and, and and it's weird that even now as an adult like i can do that because again we're the only ones who are sort of forced to look at ourselves through the eyes of other people you know white people don't ever have to do it they're just like, i'm just a person i just live my life yeah. <laughs> to explain that and actually put it into words a lot of young aboriginal people struggle when mm. they're put in the situation of explaining their aboriginality yeah. and as, as you said it's something that we shouldn't even have to have mm. the conversation. Yeah, you know, white Australia's always seen Aboriginal people in through certain lights, mm. and and then they judge you good or bad for how you match up against their expectations. Yeah, not acknowledging the impacts of our history on us. So, you know, I didn't grow up on my father's country. We moved around a bit. Dad had to move around a bit for all sorts of different reasons. And then you know, when you're looking at yourself and your connections to country and land, like you feel less than or more than or better than or worse than because of things that have largely been out of our control, many of which are the inevitable effects of colonisation. And so, like I said, growing up, we, we just grew up. We yeah. went camping when we went camping. We worked the farm when we worked the farm. We did what we did. It was just life. But as an adult, I have had to think about, like, you know, Dad only knew a, a handful of language words or, I think, again, for me, separating, like, which knowledge did he have that he picked up that was traditional Gomorrah knowledge, which was knowledge he picked up from mob from his time up here in the Territory, which was knowledge he picked up from Whitefellas, and actually trying to pick that apart to understand my dad better because he, he passed away when I was younger, and then, you know, in turn understand myself better and, and what I want to do with my life. So, you know, I've learnt more language than dad learnt, and I've now got my own kids to try and pass that on to. But they're Gamilaroi, Wiradjuri, Gambangi. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they've got a lot to work out in, yeah. in what that all means for themselves too. You decided to go into teaching. Again, mm. um, young fellow Wagga Wagga, uh, teaching wouldn't not necessarily been on the hit list of many out there. No, no, probably not. And funny enough, and I think, you know, for a lot of mob who go into professional spaces, like, you know, white fellas go, like, I had a really great teacher, so I wanted to be a teacher, or I had a really great whatever. So, whereas ours tends to be, I had a really crap one, so I wanted to do it to help fix the system, because I knew, you know, like so many people I know working in health, because uh, they saw family members who died too young because the health system failed them. You know, a lot of the Aboriginal teachers I know saw the education system failing those around us so i think a, a lot of us sadly have that inverted motivation to go into education but i've always i think been a natural educator in that if, if i see someone who doesn't understand something and wants to understand it and i do understand it then i i have a natural sort of pull to to want to help and so it, it was a very natural thing for me in, in my own mind. People who knew me were like, what? <laughs> like, probably not something you would have picked. So how long did you stay in teaching and why did you get out? Less time than it took me to get the degree. <laughs> so, you know, five years at uni in a four-year degree, but yeah, as happens, and then three years of teaching and I was out. And um, So the time that you were teaching, where did you teach and what? On the did, Central Coast. What New did South you get Wales. out of t teaching? I loved it. And yeah. I taught year three. Um, so you're talking, you know, your eight and nine-year-olds, great 
great stage. They're just that really starting to come into their own sense of individuality, starting to question more, starting to challenge more, starting to really shape their view of the world, themselves, each other. You know, like your, your kindy kids and your little ones are very much me, me, me. Like they, they don't understand that other people exist mm. really. Yeah, it's, it's very egocentric at that age. But by the time you get to that, like it was just a really great age, man, and I, I love working in the classroom. Um, but yeah, you know, I felt fairly isolated um, being the only Aboriginal teacher in the school. I was like a lot of us when you're going through those early 20s, mid 20s, you know, I was getting into more of my outspoken <laughs> activist. At that stage, how did that go down at the school? <laughs> well, that's that's probably why I was only there for three years. So, you know, I, I challenged a, a few things. There were some teachers there who were really good and really great and really worked to sort of meet me on my terms and understand me, but there were, you know, a, a lot of people there thought I only got the job because I was Aboriginal and you know the Aboriginal kids who get railroaded I really struggled watching that happen and you know like on <laughs> I, was, I was teaching when the apology happened and just hearing some of the the discussions around the justification like, but people at the time were trying their best and it's all misunderstood and like yes we need to say sorry but it wasn't that bad to begin with and like and that stuff's really hard when you're Especially within that workplace, like I'm, I'm the youngest teacher there. By I was closer in age to a lot of the kids there than the other teachers. Only Aboriginal teacher there. Not many male teachers there. So were you seen as a troublemaker? Probably by some. I think a lot of people just didn't get me. Just didn't know what I was about. Didn't know why I was there. Didn't. Yeah, you know, their life experience was so different from mine their politics were so different from mine we just didn't and like I said some of them really tried and some of them were really nice there were a couple of teachers I'd go and have dinner with at their house and you know then they were really excited about having an Aboriginal teacher there you know where there was another fellow like one of my first interactions was um like oh so you know you're, you're the Aboriginal teacher <laughs> let's see where this goes and um I'm like, yep yep that's me yeah and he's like oh so do you do you need a degree for that <laughs> it's like, mate, I'm, I'm here teaching year three. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not, I'm not just here teaching dance or how to play the dig or something. Like, I'm teaching maths, I'm teaching science, English. Like, yes, yes, I have a degree. But you know that, like I said, people just they just had no idea. And so, yeah, we all we all kind of got let down. They they should have been taught more. I probably should have been better prepared for what I was going to encounter. What came after teaching? Anything I could find, man. When teaching's one of those degrees, you don't you know you do a teaching degree to be a teacher. Like it, it's not a stepping stone degree. It's not a degree that comes with a lot of options. So I kind of like I said, you know, dad, manual labour, mum, public service. I was like, I guess I'll do one of those. So I was, I was doing a bit of labouring work here and there. I was doing a bit of consultancy work, a bit of training. Back in my younger days, I used to do a bit of dance, and so I'd you know, pick up some like the NADOC type, you know, go and do the dance with the group, put on, you know, take young fellas on cultural awareness camps or you know, whatever they were called back then. But yeah, you know, just taking kids out bush. <laughs> I really enjoyed that sort of stuff. But no, no way to make a living. Not a lot of money in that. Yeah, you know, when you got a dance group of like ten fellas and you're getting paid three hundred bucks <laughs> for the job, like it's not. It doesn't go far. So, yeah, I, I was really unsure of where I was going to go and what I was going to do. I um, felt very sort of frustrated and, and let down a bit by my experience in education. Didn't really want to go into public service. You know, saw Dad you know, not enjoy his life in manual labour, so he wasn't really looking forward to that path either. So I was kind of at a, at a crossroads of um, no, good, <laughs> no, no good plans ahead of me, but i got to live. And then, you know, the road to Indigenous X kind of serendipitously 
opened up in front of me by chance. As a young fella, you were identified as a future leader. Now, yeah, the moral of the story there, man, I think is we have all of these Indigenous youth leadership opportunities that open up. But the reality is the systems that be, they don't want outspoken Indigenous people. And so, you know, we've got this Indigenous youth parliament. We don't have an Indigenous parliament. Mm. We don't have, you know, you like... And that's, again, I think, where I sort of went wrong in in my career path. If yeah, Not, not that I consider... Um, I like where I am now, but in terms of, like, I didn't succeed at teaching, I didn't stay in education. Where I went wrong was that no one told me that it, it's not how it works. Like, they don't want you to be a leader. They don't want you to be outspoken. They don't want you to challenge the status quo. No bureaucracy really does. And so... Yeah, I really worry about that Indigenous youth leadership space because it is, it's like we've got leaders who are 40 and 50 and 60 years old. You don't want them. So what what are you telling me that you want 18-year-old leaders for? You know, if, if we're not embracing those people when they grow up and actually try to lead, what what are we doing? The process and concept of Indigenous X, how did that come about? It was born on Twitter, um, for those who don't know, yeah, Indigenous X, where, where we started from, um, still probably our, our biggest home, best known on Twitter. Um, but I was just on Twitter, and like 10 years ago, like Twitter's only, you know, 12 or 13 years old. So I was one of those sort of young people, first people on the space going like, oh, what are we doing here? What's this all about? Yeah, just mucking around, having fun, doing what we wanted to do, causing trouble. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of carrying on, <laughs> a lot of good fun, um, a lot of innocent fun. But I sort of grew a, a bigger following than, than a lot of people in those early days. So, you know, I got to about 5,000 followers and started to get invited to do media and radio and write articles and, and things like that. And that was very flattering, um, very gratifying in, in those early days. It was like, you know, people like what I've got to say. And I didn't understand how media worked. I'm just media friendly. Like, I can sit here and talk to you on radio. I can talk on the camera. I can write comfortably. It doesn't bother me. So I was just accessible. I, I was media friendly. Um, and if you work in media, you look for interviews who you know are going to be able to talk. So it wasn't so much what I had to say, it was that I was able to say it. Um, and I think one day I, I got invited to talk about women's experiences of living under the intervention that made me realise <laughs> um, that they probably weren't asking me for my unique perspectives. It was just a lot of journos at the time. They didn't know any Aboriginal people and they knew me through Twitter. So I'm like, get Luke, he'll, he'll have an opinion on that because I was... Yeah, I'm pretty opinionated, but that's that was the first one that really hit me in the face of like, oh, I, I'm not talking about that. <laughs> like, maybe you should talk to some women who live under the intervention, um, and th- and that sort of really jarred me awake. With uh, you know, I, I, at the time, had very innocently and naively just gone on the journey of like, what's this fun new space? So, what was it about your writing or your your thoughts and and your opinions that you think worked at, on that space? I don't know, man, it's not a big note yourself, but um, I don't know, I think I'm generally pretty engaged, I'm pretty honest, um, you know, I, I like to think I sometimes can see things in, in ways that are obvious but other people have missed, mm. and so I, I work a lot in metaphor when, when I talk, when I'm trying to teach and explain, so I think it was those teaching skills 
when trying to talk people about political issues or you know identity or culture or history or whatever it, you know in, engaging and, and educational and informative and a bit of fun and you know, easy to engage with um and and i was i was active man on twitter back in the day like i was just there all day every day hammering away at it you know i was just relentless and so I think people just sort of saw my passion and, and got swept up in it. And you know, it wasn't for everyone, but for the people that it was for, they got on board with what I was talking about. And then, you know, after I started to see the media and my interactions with it a bit differently. That was uh, Indigenous ex-founder there, Luke Pearson, was speaking with uh, Carmen's Paul Wiles. That was the first part of that conversation. We're looking to bring you the second part of that one tomorrow. We're going to go to a very short break now, and then we'll be right back with a uh, short version of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country. Hey, hey, this is Shawnee Tilbury, and you listen to Strong Voice on Karma Radio. Woo! That's right. You're listening to Strong Voices, and now it's time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from the country. A big good morning to Paul Wiles and Damien Williams. Good morning. Good morning. To you first, Paul, I understand uh, a story this morning in regards to uh, government sort of dismissing new start increase. Intervening. Uh, well, the Australian Council of Social Service says it's alarmed by a report that the government intervened in a parliamentary inquiry to remove a recommendation to increase new start. ACOS acting CEO Jacqueline Phillips says it's outrageous that a government minister would step in and change a parliamentary inquiry's recommendations which should be based purely on evidence presented to the inquiry. They've called on the government to urgently reconsider its position. And obviously we've spoken uh, over a a number of years now with... uh uh, the Northern Territory Council of Social Services about New Start, and we've seen a lot of people over the years talking about New Start and the difficulties of living on, you know, such a low amount of money. And obviously, yep. we're talking about people who are doing it very tough in these situations. Well, we are, and uh, I, I suppose the dilemma is that the gap continues to widen between the haves and the have-nots, and the rich and the richer. Mm. Um, the richer are getting richer, uh, mm. while the poor are still hanging in there. Uh, there's still a great discrepancy within Australia, which is one of the richest countries on earth, and uh, I think we can do better with um, social justice and and other areas like that. And just briefly on to you as well, Damien, I understand you have a story this morning around uh, a speech by June Oscar about uh, Indigenous incarceration rates. Yeah, she used her speech in um, at the UN, to the UN in Geneva to demand the federal government take action on the rising rates of Aboriginal women in jail. Uh, Aboriginal Trust Islander women represent two percent of Australia's female population, but make up thirty-four percent of all women in prison. So, uh, June has used her speech to call on the Human Rights Commission Council to, yeah, um, push the government to get those rates down. Mm. Definitely very concerning when you see some of those rates. But on that note, uh, Damien, Paul, thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Strong voices. 